0: So, in this chapter, Jesus has been revealing our spiritual need. We need to remember that the entire chapter is centered around Christ's proclamation in verse 12 when he declares himself to be the light of the world. He says, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And as the chapter unfolds, as this conversation unfolds, this interaction, as it unfolds, Jesus is revealing our spiritual need. He's revealing the spiritual darkness in which we walk. We see that in verses 12 through 20. He's revealing the spiritual death in which we exist, verses 21 through 30. He's revealing the spiritual bondage in which we're held, verses 31 through 36. And he's revealing the spiritual ignorance on which we tend to lean, verses 37 through 47. Throughout the chapter, Jesus is calling for faith. He's really calling for faith while he's also exposing phony faith. We need to remember that Jesus is speaking with religious people. People who claimed to know God. They, they claimed to possess faith in God. They even claimed to believe Christ, according to verse 31. At least some of them did. But their faith was faulty. So Jesus has been teaching them about Himself. He's been teaching them about themselves. He's been sharing some hard but necessary truths along the way, because he desires true faith, true faith, as opposed to faulty or phony faith. And this theme of this theme and this teaching continues in this morning's passage. For what we find here in verses 48 through 59, we find that Jesus makes yet another call to faith, and he backs it up with yet another claim. By the way, for those who are interested in such things or keep track of such things, it's because of, because of this that I've changed the title of this sermon from The Clarion Call of Christ, as stated in your bulletin, to The Call and Claim of Christ. The Call and Claim of Christ, because the more I read and reflect on this passage The more I think about its message and meaning, the more, uh, the clearer Christ's call and his claim become. The call of Christ is heard in verse 51. The claim of Christ is given in verse 58. These two verses are of utmost importance. They're really the key verses in this section. Most significant, both are spoken by Jesus Himself. Both begin with the words, truly, truly, I say to you. Both emphasize the character of Christ. Both concern true faith in Christ. Therefore, both underscore this main point. Here it is in simple form. Jesus Christ can be trusted because Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ can be trusted because Jesus Christ is God. This might be, might be, might seem like old news to some of you. But trust me, we need to be reminded of what we already know. And I suspect that even in this room, if the inner recesses of our hearts were exposed, I suspect that there's probably not a single one of us this morning who isn't wrestling with faith on some level. And what we are thinking and saying and praying and crying in some way is God, can I really trust you? Are you really there? Are you really mine? Am I really yours? And I think the Word of God is saying to us this morning that Jesus Christ can be trusted because Jesus Christ is God. And so whatever it is that's going on in there, I think the Lord is going to take aim at that. And He wants you to trust Him today. I want to take it in three parts. First, the call of Christ. Second, the claim of Christ. Third, the example of faith put forth by Christ. That's where we're going. The section begins with the Jews... Casting insult upon the Lord. It really is astonishing. Jesus has been exposing their faulty faith while continuing to reveal their need of repentance. He said to them, as we just read in verse 47, the final verse of the previous section, He says, Whoever is of God hears the words of God. And then He looks at them. I just picture it. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. (laughs) Now, This was no doubt very, very hard for them to hear. And they were offended. And they lash out against the Lord. They resort to name calling, really. They say in verse 48, are are we not right? Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan? They're just trying to dismiss him. They're just trying to disparage him. To, to many Jews, to most Jews at that time, Samaritans were nobodies. They were less than nobodies. They were, they were traitors. They were half-breeds. So by calling Jesus a Samaritan, these folks were hurling, in a sense, they were hurling racial slurs trying to degrade him and tear him down with their words. And then when they accused him of having a demon, can you imagine this? They're accusing him of having a demon. They're suggesting that he was even worse than a Samaritan. As far as they were concerned, he was demon-possessed. And I want you to notice how Jesus responds to their attack. He's not flustered by their name-calling. He doesn't retaliate. He says simply, I do not have a demon, (laughs) but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. And then he continues... My paraphrase, but even though you dishonor me, you you need to know this, even though you dishonor me, be assured that I'm not seeking honor for myself from you. In other words, I don't need your approval to validate who I am or what I'm doing. I'm not seeking my own glory. He said, God seeks it. And God is the judge. So Jesus is saying, it seems, it seems he's saying that he's, he's really not trying at all to win their favor, to glorify himself in their fickle estimation. Rather, he's resting in what God thinks of him Because at the end of the day, God's judgment matters most. Now, this really isn't the main point to the text, but I I do want to take a quick aside because I I think there's a lesson for us here. The lesson is to concern ourselves more with what God thinks than with what people think. The lesson is to find our identity and and assurance in God, not in people's ever-fluctuating, ever-changing opinions of us. It's not that people don't matter. It's not even that their opinions don't matter. Not at all. In fact, God often brings people across our path to speak His truth into our lives. But that's the point, right? The point is that it's His truth. We seek. So we need to rest in what God thinks of us as Jesus did and what God is doing in and through our lives. But, I, but there's another aspect to, the, to this statement, I think, that is more in line with the flow of the text. When Jesus says, There is one who seeks to glorify me and he is the judge, I think, or at least it seems, that he is making a connection. Between what we make of Christ and how we're judged before God. For he immediately follows by saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever keeps my word, he will never see death. If anyone keeps, My word, he will never see death. If anyone keeps my word, I don't know. I mean, I I picture it as we've tried to put ourselves in this scene. We know there are many people there. And then the crowd appears, especially around verse 31, maybe the crowd appears to thin. And Jesus begins to speak directly to those who are claiming to believe. But I I suspect there are still listeners, people around the edges who are just still listening in and observing what's happening. And so he says now, he says, If anyone keeps my word... He will never see death. This is the call of Christ. This is Christ's call. What does it mean? To see death or to taste death, as it says in verse 52, means to experience death. But people die. Right? People before the time of Christ died. People at the time of Christ died. People since the time of Christ have died. Even Christ Himself died before rising again to new life. And yet Jesus says, If anyone keeps My word, he will never see death. So He must be speaking about another kind of death. Indeed, Scripture speaks of two deaths. There is physical death that affects us all, And there is eternal death that affects only some. Physical death is temporal. Eternal death is obviously eternal. Physical death comes first unless the Lord returns first. Eternal death comes afterwards. And Jesus is talking about eternal death here, about the second death that is much more consequential than the first. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. We'll come back to John 8. Here in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, the Apostle John describes this death, this second death like this. Revelation 20, verse 11 Then I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it. And from His presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Here it is. This. Is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So, John saw a vision of the future when all humanity will stand before God and each person will be judged by God and each fate will be determined. Some will be spared eternal death by the love and grace and mercy of God, but some will not be spared. And the deciding factor between who will and will not experience the second death is whether or not their names are written in the book of life. And that which determines whether or not our names are written in the book of life. Listen. It's going to bring us back to John 8. That which determines whether or not our names are written in the book of life. is our individual response to Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is saying here in John 8, 51. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And so the question for each of us, for each of us, is what's my response to Jesus? Do I keep his word or not? I want to come back to this in a bit, what it means to keep his word. But but that's the question we have to ask ourselves. It's a hard question. These are sections filled with hard truths. A question that causes us to take inventory of our individual response to Christ. And notice that Jesus introduces His call with the words, Truly, truly, I say to you. can't miss this. These words, truly, truly, are are enormous words. They're words of emphasis, and the phrase, I say to you, is very personal. It's as if Jesus is stressing something very important, and he's speaking to you directly. Truly, truly, I say to you. You see, just as there are two types of death, so are there two types of life. There's, there's physical life, this life, and there's spiritual eternal life, and by saying that those who keep His Word will never see death, Jesus is promising life, new life, sometimes called the new birth, and that we must be born again by God to enjoy this life with God. And those who answer Christ's call, those who respond to Christ in this way, experience life with God now, today, and live with God forever. Now, listen, that Jesus gave this promise to these people in this text is amazing to me. These people didn't deserve this promise. These people were debating Him, finding fault with Him mocking him, taking personal jabs at him, hurling racial slurs at him, blaspheming him. These people attempted to kill him, and yet to them, to them he promised life, eternal life with God. If only they would keep his word, and Jesus makes the same promise to us who, like them, don't deserve it. The list of our sins against God, right? This is, this isn't new to us. The list of our sins against God is a mile long. All of us have dishonored Him. All of us have rejected Him in one way or another. All of us have ignored Him and chosen our own way instead at one time or another. We have all debated Him. We've all debated Him. We've all walked away from Him. We've all thumbed our noses at him. We've all considered him insignificant. We've all made him the punchline of cruel jokes. In one way or another, we've all fallen short of his glory. And yet to us, He promises life, eternal life, if only we will keep His word. I pray, even this week, in this passage, I pray. That I would never grow numb or indifferent to the patience and kindness and mercy and grace and love of God toward me. I don't deserve it. Their cruelty was met with his kindness to inspire repentance and to bring us into relationship with himself. But sadly, rather than repent and receive God's promise, they continue in their refusal. Now we know that you have a demon, they shout in verse 52. Just who do you make yourself out to be? You're out of your mind, Jesus. You're under demonic influence. They just didn't get the fact that, that he was talking about true eternal life. They were thinking only of the here and now. Listen, that's a common mistake we all make. Thinking only of the here and now. They missed the bigger picture. They weren't thinking about what happens when this fast fleeting life comes to an end. Just who do you think you are? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus essentially answers, I'm not making myself anything. God is glorifying me. And then he says, but you don't know God. Certainly not. For even Abraham, who did know God, even Abraham testifies to me. Even he rejoiced to see my day, and he did see it, and he was glad. And they say, you're not yet even 50 they're just thinking in these literal terms, right? You're not even yet 50, and you've seen Abraham so short-sighted, thinking only of the present circumstances, thinking only, thinking that Jesus was only in his young 30s at this time in his, young, in his earthly ministry, and not even yet 50 years old, just a round number that they throw out. Abraham's been dead for nearly 1,900 years. You've seen him. And then here comes the claim. He supports, Jesus supports his call with this crystal clear claim in verse 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And with this, Jesus was claiming equality with God. Not only was He sent by God, not only is He the Son of God, He is God. He is of the same nature as God. He is one with God. He is Ego, Amy, or He is the Great I Am. This statement refers back to Exodus 3, remember, when Moses met God at the burning bush Then and there, God called Moses to go back to Egypt to lead the people of God from their captivity, but Moses didn't want to go, right? Moses was looking for an out. And so Moses asked, what do do I say to the people when they ask me by what authority I'm doing these things? Uh, When I I say that God has sent me and they ask for God's name, what name do I give them? And God said to Moses, Exodus 3.14, Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. He says, You say to the people of Israel, the I am has sent me. It was this self disclosing name of God. God is describing himself with himself. I am who I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. And so this name, the name I am, was remembered and revered by the people. And here Jesus takes this name, a name they knew to be God's alone, and He claims it for Himself. It's a clear call to His deity, His divinity. Jesus is making Himself equal with God who remains the same from everlasting to everlasting. How? How can He do this? How can He speak like this? It's only because... He was and is the divine Son of God who had been with God from eternity past and was now God incarnate in their midst. And the downward spiral continues. This infuriates them. The chapter ends with them picking up stones to kill Christ unsuccessfully, of course. It's time had not yet come. But here we see something about the human heart. Confronted in their sin and faced with the reality of spiritual death and their need of new life, they didn't repent, but remained obstinate in their response to Jesus. Maybe Maybe they were trying to uphold the Levitical law, accusing Christ of blasphemy, or maybe maybe they just wanted a Messiah of their own making to their own liking. And Jesus just didn't quite fit into their box. Either way, It goes to show the deceitfulness of sin. Listen, especially sin cloaked in religious garb and the hardness of the human heart. How foolish, how sad, how tragic, really, to claim faith in God while rejecting the Son of God. So how about you? Do you respond as they did? In your heart, pushing him away, willing to believe to a point, but not at all willing to surrender. Again, what is it that's going on in there? How are you responding to Jesus in there, in whatever is going on in your heart and soul? Yeah, I'll believe you to a point, but I won't surrender. will you take Him at His word and live? To trust Him and abide in Him. That's what it means, essentially, to keep His word. It means to learn from Jesus, to obey Jesus. Essentially, it means to trust Jesus as the Lord of your life. and to follow as He leads. And we need to hear both parts of that. I think sometimes in, in the church, we think of trusting Jesus as the Lord of our life as occurring only at a moment of conversion. But, but really, it's so much more than that. It's trusting Him as the Lord of, the, of your life and then following Him as he leads, I want to close. We've considered the call of Christ, the, the, the claim of Christ. I want to close quickly by the example of faith put forth by Christ. Verse 56, Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and it was glad. Jesus uses Abraham as an example for us, as an example of true faith. Faith that keeps God's word, faith that trusts God, faith that looks to Christ. God had promised Abraham... That through his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Abraham's son Isaac was the child of promise from whose line the blessing would come. We read this in Genesis 17. Isaac is born in Genesis 21. And then in Genesis 22, Abraham is put to the ultimate test of faith when he is told to offer Isaac in sacrifice to God. I cannot even imagine. And yet, Abraham obeys the Lord takes Isaac to Mount Moriah, builds an altar and binds his son. He lifts his hand and with knife in hand, he prepares to make the ultimate sacrifice when God suddenly stays his hand. God provides a substitute for Isaac and Abraham. A ram caught in the thicket. Abraham, right, he's just relieved beyond belief. He is overjoyed. He releases Isaac and takes the ram and offers the ram and said, and then he called the name of that place the Lord will provide. And Jesus is referring back to that encounter. Somehow in those moments, Abraham knew. I don't know how he knew. I can't fully explain it, but somehow in those moments, Abraham knew in ways we cannot fully explain. Abraham somehow saw in the far distance another child. A Redeemer whose advent would indeed bless all the nations from His own line. Nearly 2,000 years later, the Lord provided another substitute on that same mount. He too was a child of promise, the promised Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God. He was the Lamb of God who, unlike Isaac, was not spared slain in the ultimate demonstration of God's love the sinless one died for sinners in need of rescue from death and somehow with the eyes of faith Abraham saw the day of Christ and rejoiced He saw it in the substitutionary sacrifice he and and Isaac experienced on that mount, a sacrifice that, that pointed to another far greater substitute. And Jesus now presents Abraham as an example of true faith. Essentially, he's saying that's what faith looks like. It's faith that obeys the Lord. It's faith that trusts the Lord. It's faith that looks to the Lord. It's faith that brings life in the Lord. If you don't yet trust the Lord... Or entrust yourself to the Lord, you can today. You can acknowledge your sin and your need before God. You can turn from going your own way and submit instead to Christ. He becomes the Lord of your life. You begin to learn from Him and look to Him always and you receive life with God in His name. And for those of us who already, who already trust the Lord, keep trusting. Keep trusting. Faith doesn't end at conversion. It's not only saving faith, but sanctifying faith. So trust Him in your youth, young people. Trust Him in middle age. Trust Him in older age. Trust Him with your dreams and with the desires of your heart. Trust Him with your anxieties, the things that vex you, maybe even this morning. Trust Him in your relationships. Trust Him at work or school or home or church. Trust Him when things are good or not as good, trial or triumph, whether young or old or anything in between, in any and every circumstance, look to Christ and trust Him. We must always remember, dear people, that Jesus Christ can be trusted because Jesus Christ is God. Amen. So, maybe we take 20 seconds of quiet and we each individually just uh, entrust ourselves again to the Lord. Whatever it is that is going on inside your heart, if you can understand it, will you surrender that? Will you surrender to Him? Will you lean upon him? Will you surrender your very self, the totality of your life? It's one thing to surrender our concern, but will you surrender yourself as well as your concern? Father, thank you for meeting us in your word. Continue to impress its truth, your truth, upon our hearts. And make us people of faith. For Jesus' sake, amen.